This is Unheard Cuts on Being. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with literary historian Paul Collins and artist and author Jennifer Elder. They are also parents of Morgan, who has autism. I spoke with them on August 22, 2007, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. They were in the studios of Oregon Public Broadcasting in Portland, Oregon. This interview is included in our show, Autism and Humanity. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Hello? 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 Hi. Hi, this is Jennifer. Hi, it's Krista. Hi. Oh, hi. Oh, hi, this is Paul. Yeah, nice to have you on the other end of the line. Yeah. <laughs> Microphone. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm really, really delighted that you agreed to do this. I mean, do you have any questions of me um, about the show? Or what? Sorry. Oh, oh all right. So, so oh. okay. If you do, um, Mitch thinks, my producer here thinks they're still setting up at your end, so... Oh, yeah. Yes, they they're said they're still... having technical difficulties. Yeah. Okay. But Mitch, we can talk, can't we? Okay. I don't want to talk about anything substantive though. But okay. <laughs> if you want let's just talk I can handle that. trivial. But if if um if uh if you did have you know, if you have any questions, uh fire away. I don't think so, but I, I uh, really enjoyed your uh, interview with Barbara King Solver. Oh, yeah. That, I thought actually I went out and planted a garden after that for the first time. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> it really affected me practically. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really was good. I actually think I might go listen to the, the long one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, you know, I guess that's hardcore when you're listening to the long version uh, radio, but it's really great that you guys have that. Well, you know, we just started putting those up about... I don't know, a month ago, six weeks ago, and my oh. online editor really wanted us to do it. And um, it's been amazing how many people listen to those and really idea. appreciate yeah. it. And that's kind yeah, of, I, yeah, sorry. Oh, yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've noticed that a, a lot of like print publications now will have, uh, you know, they have the, the usual interview that you see in print, but then you can basically see the, enti- the interview in its entirety yeah. online. It's a great idea. We've actually just also started sometimes taping the sessions we have, where um, which we call cuts and copy, where I'm oh, okay. I've written the script and we're going through the kind of roughly edited interview, and we're having a big group session about how we need to shape this and set it up, and what people know and what they don't know, and and how the editing is, and it's very rough. But my my online editor again thinks there's a big audience for this kind of raw <laughs> raw content. <laughs> <laughs> it's the new world we inhabit. <laughs> so I see Mitch is deep in discussion about something. <laughs> oh, uh, by the way, honey, yes. uh, it has the volume in your headphones because there's a little controller over here. Oh, there is? Mine sounds good. Oh, okay. okay. This is my first time uh, doing this, so Paul's sort of showing me the ropes. Yeah, I know Shaw, Paul's an expert. <laughs> and <laughs> that, That's very much in quotation marks, I think. <laughs> well, you're a pro. You've done this before, and I know you're a good talker. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, I, I really wish since there are three of us that I was in the room with you, but you have each, you'll have verbal cues from each other. And um, um, I just, I guess, you know, because this is not live and we don't have to cut it down to 10 minutes, we really do get to have a free-flowing conversation. And you may jump on each other's words sometimes, and that's okay. Um I just I want to um I want to um 
talk ab- about both of your books, and I, I want to start with some of the. Okay, Mitch. Um, I just want to. Um, I just want to tell Stephen. Um, the level coming to me is very low. I'm just wondering if that can be boosted at all. Yeah, it feels it sounds low to me should too. I, should I be getting closer to the mic, maybe? Is that going to help at all? Uh, I think it needs a lot more than that. I'm afraid. Okay. okay. <laughs> I thought maybe that was just my volume being turned down. No. What's that, Freddie? Oh, you you should say something. No, no, leave I was just going to say you should. But, no, but leave, don't, don't keep moving it. Don't move it. Okay. I'm going to try calling them. Okay. Adjust it. Okay. Because <laughs> every, so, every time it moves, they have to kind of rejigger so it. So, yeah, Krista, you weren't planning on uh, necessarily directing the questions, or were you going to direct the questions to uh, one of us or the other. Well, what I was going to say is at any given moment, it may be, it may be more directed to one of you, or one of you may have more to say. But I, you know, I want to encourage the other one to, um, to pipe up if you feel like it. Um, right. Let's right. just try to have a natural three-way conversation, and it will work. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. And I, you so, know, I, I've done a lot of reading and preparing, and yet I, you know, my measure of a good conversation is when. We leave my notes, and we're just really talking <laughs> right. and getting yeah. somewhere. And um, so, are are you in Minnesota? Yes. Mm-hmm. Is is it raining on you? How's it? It's been raining for days. It's yeah. so strange. We had the most perfect summer up to now, although it was too dry, and now it's just been too wet. But it's not. Right. We're up here. That there's flooding happening about an, like an hour or two south, and it's not wow. actually flooding here. But it's it's very strange. Um, I'm wondering if Stephen can hear me. I don't hear Stephen anywhere. Did you try to call him? You know, maybe he said he had something else to finish up. Do you think maybe that's what he's doing? No. Um, um, Paul, can you see Stephen through the glass at all? Uh, no, there's actually no uh, panel here for that. But I'll... I'll... I'll poke my head out and take a look. Okay. So you you live in Portland now, right, Jennifer? Yes. And mm-hmm. but you're not from there, are you? No. This is the engineer. Oh, hi. No. Okay. Uh, hi, Steve. This is uh, Mitch Hanley. Say, I'm wondering the level just seems really low coming to me. Uh, that first of all, and secondly, is there a phone number where you can be reached during the interview? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh, 503-293-1997. Is that your desk? Yeah. So you won't be actually sitting in the interview? Well, you know, I would love to, but one of our consoles actually went down this morning, so I had to put everybody into uh, a production room. There's a couple of Neumann mics in here, so it should sound okay, but unfortunately I have basically no control over it. Okay. Is it possible to boost the level that I'm getting? Uh. Is, is the level that it is coming from my mic fine, right? Yours is better than theirs. Yeah. Okay, so let me see what I can do here. Yeah, if you can give me just a second, okay? Sure. Just the gain on this mic here. 
it because we just okay. We just kind of do you want me to move? Huh? If I can. <coughs> Just give me a check. Yes, Jennifer's mic. How does it sound? I don't think it's really getting much louder. No. And could you give me a quick check on this microphone? Sure. Uh, this is Paul's microphone. And uh, how are the looking on that? That's a lot better. I'm wondering if. Um, Jennifer's microphone can come up a little bit more than. Yeah, they're saying mine's coming through yeah. a lot better, but that uh, Jennifer's is not not quite. Yeah, you know, I wonder if maybe it was probably would just work better if you guys just shared, shared this mic. microphone. Yeah. Okay. At this point, because I can't. Can we both speak into this? I'm not actually sure what kind of mic. If if we're both talking off axis, is, is that, that going to work for us, Ben? Uh, actually, no. Um, let's just. Let me just hear Jennifer talking into her own mic for a second. My own mic. Okay. Yeah. And when okay. you lean if in, I don't know, okay. Jennifer. Whatever, okay. Whatever's better. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is me on my own mic. Can I hear Paul? Yeah, and this is uh, this is me on my mic. Okay, I think we'll just have to make that work. Okay. I wonder if Paul is leaning in a little bit more. No? I I am leaning a li- in a okay. little bit right now. I would say Jennifer. Do you want, do you want, Jennifer, Jennifer just has a bit in? softer voice. Maybe just lean in. The microphone is your friend. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot better. Okay. Oh, that. Oh, okay. That'll do. It. Yeah, that's it. Okay. That's it. Yep. Um, okay. Great. Um, let me just ask you this. Uh, now, Paul, your book was the book. Um, Not even wrong was was that published in two thousand four? Is that right? Right. And yeah, so it came out in the spring of two thousand four. How old was Morgan when you were actually writing it? He was young. I, I started. Right? Yeah, I started writing it not real long after his diagnosis, maybe within five or six months of it. So he was about three and a half at the time. Okay. And and, uh, and I finished it about a year later when he was four and a half. Yeah. And how old is he now? Um, wait. Eight and a half. He's wait, eight actually, and a half. Yeah. Wait, I'm, my own chronology is getting... <laughs> <laughs> getting mixed up here. Well, I know there's always this lag time between you write the writing and the publishing, right. and so I, I mm-hmm. yeah. So he's eight and a half now. Yes. Okay. All right. So I guess I finished it when he was. Uh, it came out when he was five. All right. Okay. Well, that yeah. makes sense. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. yeah, there's the cliffhanger. Yeah. At English the... major is doing that. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there's the cliffhanger, and <laughs> we'll get at to the end that. of the book. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> um, and you know it was it was really interesting that it struck me when I was reading the beginning that you were new parent you were first time parents and and Morgan's normal was normal to you um <laughs> right we didn't know anything else and we we really had no basis of comparison because uh for one thing we'd been moving around a lot so we we didn't have uh a situation where we could watch someone else's child developing over the course of several years and, mm-hmm. and actually notice that the 
sort of the milestones were progressing really differently for other people's kids. But, you know, we used to um, notice uh, that what we just thought was his unique personality. Like when he was a yeah. baby, we used to joke that he was inscrutable because he would just look at you, yeah. you know, for a long time without sort of smiling or laughing. And, but we didn't know that was anything, you know, there was anything strange about it. Well, and I, but I also, I mean, he sounds like a, I mean, toddlers are <laughs> kind of strange, eccentric beings and inscrutable in a way. And I mean, I also, you know, you also knew that he was smart and you knew that he was happy. Um, right. And, that was one thing that, yeah, that really threw me off actually was that he, um, well, he had what's what's known as uh, as cognitive scatter, which is that some of his abilities uh, were, were quite advanced for his age, mm-hmm. uh, or at least progressing you know, quite quite typically, and uh, others had barely progressed at all. And you know, you usually think of developmental delays in a child as being kind of an all around thing. Yeah. Um, and so when I saw that some abilities were really coming along, I, I just assumed, well, you know, he's he's a late talker. Yeah. Um, but you know, he's doing so well and all these other things. So things must be going fine. And uh, not realizing, of course, that that's really one of the uh, almost defining characteristics with autism, that some abilities can actually become quite advanced. Right. You know, there's this this question you ask in the book, you know, after you, you go to the doctor, not really going because you think anything's wrong with him, just for a checkup. And you, you say, how can it be that we left our house an hour ago with a healthy toddler and returned with a disabled <laughs> one? <laughs> um. I also yeah. was, yeah. Did you have that same? A- absolutely. And I think that to some extent, there was a little bit of denial at the beginning. And I remember asking the the people who diagnosed him or who evaluated him, well, if you give him this uh, this disability label now, can he, uh, you know, can this be sort of expunged from his record later? <laughs> As if that when was, you're you proven know, wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. or just that, yeah, if he grew out of it. And yeah. uh, so I think that I, I, you know, I just didn't want to uh, think, I, I didn't want to take anything uh, just on face value. You know, I wanted to, uh, I, I, it, it may have been denial, but I think it was also caution on our part. You mm-hmm. know, at that point, uh, there were, it was just starting to, uh, there to be a lot of uh, children diagnosed with autism. Right. And we didn't want to just rush headlong into it. And it was also, a, sorry, yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. One of the really curious things, too, was that in the early days, it was actually surprisingly difficult to get a really straight answer from anybody about this. N- nobody really wanted to commit and just say in a single sentence, your son is autistic. This is the late 90s we're talking, right? Yeah. Uh, or, or, well, this well, is early, actually uh, 2002. Okay. Um, 2001. 2001 and okay. 2002. Mm-hmm. And he was getting all these evaluations done, and, and they would break it down into the specific characteristics. Well, he's scoring low on this ability and low on this ability, and he has this set of characteristics, et cetera, et cetera. But um, it was, was actually not until even really a couple of years later that we uh, finally got a formal medical diagnosis. But, for example, the local educational um, uh, uh, experts didn't want to just say, your son's autistic, because that's not part of their brief. They, they don't give diagnoses okay. like that. And so it was uh, it was very strange initially. I, I, you would come out of a meeting and go, so what exactly did they just tell us about our child? Right. And I guess what what I'm learning, and, and I think you describe in on so many levels, is 
it's not one thing, autism, right? It's a spectrum um, of human character and behavior, right? So you, you still have that. to get to know your child and what it means that, that your child has this diagnosis. And I, I think that cuts right to the heart of both of our works, that we uh, that there's a spectrum and that we we see the world uh, in a completely different way now. That we, um, you know, it's not just Morgan. We now see these traits running through our family and through society. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That was that was something that really was kind of a turning point for me too, which was that, you know, I, I think initially when um, when we had the, the doctor saying, well, you need to have him looked at for develop for developmental delays, it seemed like something had happened to our child. Right. You know. We we had brought him in and he was fine, and then we brought him out of the office and he was not, right. and, and uh, it was just very mystifying. And over time, what I what I came to see was that yeah, not only is there a broad spectrum of uh, of autistic behavior, but yeah, the, because these traits actually run through families and and not in the form of full blown autism necessarily, mm-hmm. but you can see some of the traits very commonly, particularly in male relatives. Hmm. Um, when I, I first heard about that and started looking around at my own family, it, it really transformed my understanding of my family. And, and in some ways, uh, people like my brother and my father started to make a, a lot more sense. <laughs> uh, and I think that was the same for Jennifer with her family as well. Uh, well, let, let's talk about that. That's that's one of the things you write about in the book, that you discovered that, in fact, there is data, there are studies about... Mm, uh, well, not just not just traits of autism, but but professions, right? Engineers and artists and scientists tend to be in families um, where That's where right. autism turns up. Yeah, there's been really fascinating research on this done by uh, Simon Baron Cohen mm-hmm. um, at, at at Cambridge University, and he's um, what he noticed essentially was that there seemed to be a lot of autistic siblings, in particular. Um, of students of his who were in uh, science-related majors uh, and, and, you know, math students as well and engineering students and that kind of thing. And so uh, initially he simply looked at, uh, just sort of did an informal study comparing English majors and the rates of autism in their families with uh, a number of science majors. And uh, the science majors that he was looking at had rates that were like five and six times that um, of autism in their families. Interestingly enough, the English majors had much, much higher rates of manic depression in their families, (laughs) (laughs) which is suddenly all makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. And and then when he expanded to studying the the broader population, he he found that that, uh, that this held up, that actually when you looked at the professions that family members of, of people with autism were in, um, they they tended to mean things like accounting, engineering, computer programming, um, and had very low rates of employment in fields like uh, sales, for okay, example, which right, is all right. about social contact. Right. And, one one way you described this thing was solitary professions requiring deep focus and abstraction, which also includes artists in that category. Yeah, and there's actually uh, musicians were very uh-huh. highly represented in in, in particular, uh, but also visual artists. Um, 
among these families that he was looking at. And and the interesting thing about that for me is the, the first reaction a lot of people have when they hear his research is they'll say, well, sure, my, my dad's an engineer. I mean, in my case, my dad is an engineer. Okay. <laughs> my, my, and my brother is uh, is finishing a PhD in computer science. And so the reaction you have is, well, uh, it is a little bit of shock initially because he's he's right. He pegged their professions pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you think, well, but they're not actually autistic. Yeah. And that's sort of his his point, uh, really, is that these these traits in in um, in, in a, a much less highly expressed form or less overexpressed form, I guess you could say, um, naturally uh, make people much better fitted for these professions. And I I think this is such an important point, and I I'm kind of surprised. I was surprised as I was reading your work that I hadn't heard more about it because another thing that it does is and I think that you say it this way at another point as well that it it reveals that autism is as much about a spectrum of abilities as disabilities in many cases um I wondered if um so much of our so much of the public debate about autism has tended to focus on what causes it, right? Something going wrong, right. something happening to the child from an outside force. And this kind of brings, it's, it's maybe, those are maybe completely separate discussions that both need to happen, but this one brings it back to, um, you know, who we are as human beings. And it, it actually connects an autistic child or person, personality to the other human beings that they're related to. <laughs> this is part of a raging debate in the autism community, which is there's sort of a, a couple of factions and the the cure faction right. that's really looking to eliminate autism. And then there are people on the other side, uh, which is more the category we would fall into, who say, wait a minute, before we eliminate this, what are we going to lose? Yeah. Because, you know, does this mean that there would have been no Isaac Newton? You yeah. Know, and there, and <laughs> So, you know, from our point of view, uh, we're we're not ready to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I, I think that's, and and one of the difficult things about that too is that it's you know very clear to anyone you know who spends any time with with an autistic child or an autistic adult that uh, I mean, particularly in cases of profound autism, uh, it's it's an extraordinarily challenging condition, and, mm-hmm. and you probably wouldn't find too many people arguing that. Um, that this shouldn't be ameliorated as as much as possible, and that in particularly extreme cases of it, that that's not something that you know that we would want to be searching for some uh, some sort of cure or prevention. Mm-hmm. But yeah, because autism encompasses such a broad spectrum and so many abilities within that spectrum, it it becomes a real question that do you want to be losing all of that too? And I, I mean, I think our society literally wouldn't look the way it does um, today. Uh, there are probably quite a few computer companies, for, for one thing, that wouldn't be in existence. <laughs> yeah, I was just <laughs> uh, You know, if it wasn't for the autistic community and, and the whole spectrum that sort of their families really uh, often encompass. Right. I mean, and, yeah. And, I mean, you also, in the in among your adventures, um, Paul, you went to Microsoft and it wasn't clear to me if you did that in the context of your book research, or do you, were you work, were you, you were doing some other work there. Strangely enough, it was actually for my um, it was actually for my first book uh-huh. uh, that, that had come out uh, the year before at that point uh, called Banvard's Folly, 
and uh, which was a book about sort of uh, failed or forgotten inventors and artists. And uh, so they they brought me up to just do a discussion with their employees. And uh, in the middle of all this, uh, you know, as they were inviting me up, all, all this started happening with Morgan with his diagnosis. And so. I asked them, well, you know, while I'm up there, do you happen to have anyone working on autism-related issues? Because I'd heard a uh, rather a lot of uh, whisperings among people that there was a, you know, a fairly major autism community uh, in, right. in a lot of computing companies, and uh, and they said, well, yes, <laughs> we certainly do have a lot going on here in, in that regard, and so. Um, yeah, that actually grew out of a, of a visit that was already going to happen. And um, for me, the, the strangest moment there um, was when I was giving uh, – I was, I was speaking, I think, primarily with the uh, what they described as the math wing um, of Microsoft. So you had a lot of people doing sort of theoretical mathematical work and working on algorithms and things like that. And uh, I was addressing this room, and all these people were uh, – working on their laptops as I was talking, even before I started talking. And so they were um, looking at the laptops rather than at you while you were yeah, speaking? Yeah, for, mm-hmm. for the entire speech. Mm-hmm. And at first I thought, wow, these are really busy people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, But then I, I realized uh, from, from some of the questions that, that they were then asking that they were, in fact, listening to me. And afterwards, I, I mentioned it to someone, like, what an odd thing, that they were working on their laptops the whole time. And they said, well, they were watching the webcast of you. Even though you were in the room. I was, I was like, 15 feet away from some mm-hmm. of these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and she said, well, that's just how they prefer to interact. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I think in a way that's I, – I mean, at one level, you, when you see something like that, you go, well, that's kind of strange. Yeah. <laughs> but, but at the same time, I think it's also – really great that we live in an age where people who ha- who may, you know, I think in the past probably wouldn't have gone to a lecture like that at all just because of all the social contact that it would have entailed. <laughs> because, but now they have the computers. Uh. Yeah, the, the, they have a way to interact that, that in the past it would have been just much too uncomfortable or, you know, kind of painful for them to deal with. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, again, the point you've been making is that it is that very same personality type set of skills um, that enables them to do this work somehow. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, the way that, that Simon Baron Cohen described it to me was he said, these, all these professions I look at have a systematizing tendency. Mm-hmm. You know, they're seeking an internal logic within a system. And, uh, uh, and that lends itself beautifully to fields like mathematics or computing, which in, in a lot of ways is basically a subset of math. Right. Um, and uh, and uh, you know at the same time it makes it extraordinarily difficult for them to deal with the uh, highly illogical world of people. <laughs> yes, yeah. I I found it fascinating that one of your responses, Paul, to the to Morgan's diagnosis was to kind of go back in history and look for um, for autism in history and in and in the human imagination and and you also found that you'd kind of been staring it in the face in a in a in a historical character who had already come to fascinate you and that was Peter the wild boy and tell me about that yeah that was kind of unnerving for me in a way yeah i i i'd been working on um sort of taking notes for for a potential book on on this uh, fellow peter the wild boy who was a uh, a feral child 
found in the Black Forest in 1725. And uh, King George took an interest in him and brought him back to the court in, uh, in London. And he wound up really becoming uh, this figure right at the center of the intellectual life of the time. Um, he was taken into the, uh, uh, the court physician's home, which, uh, you know, uh, Dr. Arbuthnot, who was someone who was friends with Jonathan Swift and with Defoe. Hmm. Um, he knew people like uh, Halley and, and Newton. And so, <laughs> I, I mean, th- this guy went from living in the forest to suddenly being at the intellectual center of, of, uh, uh, of Europe. And uh, and yet he didn't he didn't really talk, right. and so he was this figure that everybody expounded all these theories about, and he was kind of at the silent center of it, um, you know, almost this Harpo Marx kind of right. thing in the middle of of all this intellectual ferment going on around him, and and I, I, it really fascinated me. And nobody had actually written a book about him, so I, I was starting to research a book on him, um, and. It was in the middle of that, that that I started realizing that this looked pretty clearly like an early case of autism. Um, and, and because there were so many people writing descriptions of him, he was really the talk of the town for, for quite a while in London. Right. You wrote, uh, you know, he haunted the births of romanticism, zoology, and even the theory of evolution. I mean, he was <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, R- Rousseau had him in mind when he was talking about the, sort of the concept of the noble savage. People thought that, that Peter was... And a perfect example of the state of nature hmm. uh, and that here was what people were like before civilization had somehow taken over. Right. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, zoologists were also interested in him. He was seen as some sort of uh, some sort of missing link. There was this one figure, uh, Lord Mombado, um, in Britain who developed kind of a proto-evolutionary theory in the 1780s. And... Uh, he really saw Peter as this uh, this link between orangutans and humans. So he really became this extra. And, and, and but that was quite time, a revolutionary idea then that there was even oh yeah a link between <laughs> orangutans and humans. Yeah, it wasn't well received. <laughs> and uh, Samuel Johnson made a lot of fun of him actually for for coming up with this theory. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it, it would be a long time before the world was ready for Darwin. I think, <laughs> but. Uh, yeah, Peter was at the center of all this stuff. And, and the funny thing being that he had absolutely nothing to say about it and kind of couldn't care less. Um, he was just sort of in his own world and uh, living on a farm and, and sort of uh, living this very uh, rural existence and, and having really no concept of, of all the fuss he had created or, and not even particularly caring uh, for much of his life. It just, uh, but, but people took this tremendous interest in him. And, uh, yeah, for me, you know, he was this fascinating kind of uh, mirror to hold up to the age, to, to look at all of the people's reactions to him. But it was, uh, it, 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 that actually started before Morgan got diagnosed and right. after he got diagnosed. <laughs> I had this just weird moment where I realized I've been studying an autistic figure from history for months and I've got, you know, someone with autism right in front of me. Mm-hmm. But, I, I don't know if that was sort of a subconscious thing or I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. You you said Peter um, was just in his own world. And it seems that that is really um, that that's kind of a, a short definition of, um, of 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 autistic personality, isn't it? And even a, a kind of an origin of 
the term itself, which is self, <laughs> the Greek for self, atos. Yeah, it's funny. You know, the, uh, there are two doctors who came up with that, ty- uh, that term independently yeah, at almost the same time. that's an interesting story, too. Doctor, yeah. yeah, Dr. Kanner and Dr. Asperger. And um, actually, you know, uh, Asperger's syndrome is well known today, but that term has only been used uh, for a couple of decades. But yes, they both came up with the term uh, autism um, from the Greek auto, the self. And uh, I think it's maybe the only term that one could use. I can't imagine, you know, what else one might call this, uh, this state of being. It certainly is, you know, when we, we watch Morgan, I think a lot of people watching him for a short period of time might imagine that he has no need for anyone else. But, of course, you know, we live with him, so we we get to experience his interacting or his um, initiating contact with us. But uh, it's it's it, to anybody else, it would be quite subtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the funny things is that, yeah, Morgan, uh, Morgan I think like any autistic person really, interacts a lot with the outside world. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, most of his speech uh, consists of uh, either of demands from the outside world, <laughs> you know, very, uh, asking for things in a very instrumental way, yeah, or of repeating things that he hears, uh, which is a really common uh, tendency. It's known as echolalia, um, that, you know, lines from books or, or things from songs or things on TV in a way, his mind is kind of filled with all these cultural artifacts that he kind of replays over and over again. So he's actually, in his own way, he's really fascinated with the outside world. And and, and he interacts with us. There are times that he really wants us to, to be sitting with him or to explain something. But it's entirely on his own terms. You know, when he doesn't feel like interacting, he simply won't respond. Mm-hmm. And And that's what really... You know, you don't expect that from people normally. You expect people to at least take a a polite interest when you approach them <laughs> right. about whatever. And for him, it's really, you know, either he's he wants to interact or he doesn't. And there's kind of no in-between. You know, I've, I've often uh, explained it to people who weren't familiar with uh, an autistic child that it's like uh, somebody watching a video and you're trying to get their attention, but... Uh, at at the worst, they don't hear you at all, or at best, you're sort of bugging them, and they cut to try to <laughs> swat you away. Right. And that's what Morgan's like all the time. He's got something, you know. He's got sort of a video running in his head, and uh, you really have to get up in there to uh, get his attention. Right. The, the and funny I, thing too. Sorry. Is, yeah. Keep oh, going. Oh, the, the funny thing too is that is that I'm kind of like that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, again, there's that spectrum, isn't there? Yes, and, and I mean that was a, one of the really strange moments for me, and particularly when I saw uh, Baron Cohen's work, it was recognizing these traits within myself. And like what? That, Give me an example. Well, for me, it's it's really two things in particular. Um, one is, I guess, what you could call auditory processing. I actually was tested for for hearing damage a lot as a kid because my teachers thought that I, I was partly deaf. And they couldn't figure it out because every time they test me, not only was my hearing quite good, it was actually extremely good. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, was, it was unusually sharp hearing. And it's funny because nobody ever asked me, I don't think, <laughs> as a child. I don't know if I could have explained it at, at the time. But, but basically, uh, when I'm focused on something, I, I can hear 
quite well. Mm-hmm. But when I'm, um, when I, I can hear that thing quite well. But when I'm uh, focused on on an object or a project or whatever, it has the effect for me of almost uh, as if I'm turning my ears off. I, I just don't hear what's going on around me. And the ironic thing for me is that I can't imagine having a career as a historian without having that tendency. Right. You know, because I, I'm able to go into archives for hours at a time and just focus. And and it's like uh, diving underwater or something. I just don't even hear the outside world. And we think this might be uh, part of the connection between autism and what you might call genius, is the ability to focus on something. Single-mindedness. You know, uh, yeah. Absolutely, because uh-huh. in order to come to a, a conclusion, you may have to think about something without, uh, you know, without your mind wandering for a you know terribly long period of time, and Paul can do that. But of course, when I when I want to get his attention for a minor matter, <laughs> yes. it can be difficult. <laughs> right. It's almost like having to shake me awake or something when mm. I'm when I'm working on something, and um, and and so I, I think you know what Morgan experiences is is a um, is a much higher degree of that. But it, it's something that's I think helped me a lot in 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 working with him that I. I I don't take it personally that he's somehow ignoring me or something. Yeah. I, I actually understand. <laughs> I know. I, 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 I was struck. So it seems to me, so so yes, he lives in his own world, you know, to some degree we all do, but but that, but that to very d- different degrees. And, and the, but it seems as you're like, as his parents, you, you do come to know, understand many of the contours of that world. I mean, right, you're kind of, you're watching the same video to some degree, I, I know in your book, Paul, when you talked early on about, and this was before the diagnosis, and I'm sure it happened after the diagnosis, but you talk about how um, he would lean into you, you know, where maybe yeah. another child would look you in the eyes and hug you or say something to you. But but you didn't experience that to be an inferior form of communication. You knew what that meant, right? That that, that was his, yeah. that he really was leaning into you in every sense of the word. That's one really interesting thing, and I, I've noticed this too. With uh, you know, when 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 Jennifer and I go go into like uh, autism classrooms and that kind of thing, mm-hmm. where you see a lot of autistic children, um, there's a lot of people have the notion that that people with autism are averse to contact and particularly averse to touch. That it's just it's too much stimuli for them, and and they uh, they, they don't know how to deal with it. And that's partly true, but that doesn't mean that they don't want contact with other people. Mm-hmm. It's just that they, they really want it on their own terms. It's and different, so, right, right. Yeah, and so in Morgan's case, if, if you, you know, went up to him and tried to look him in the eye, I mean, first of all, trying to look him in the eye is not going to work because he'll, he'll look away. But, yeah. But, but also, uh, yeah, just trying to, to talk to, to him straight in his face or to give him a hug like that, um, he's, he's quite likely to pull away. But what he loves is... Uh, He'll he'll like climb onto our laps and want us to kind of hug our arms around his sides, hmm. and and to hold him like that because then he's getting um, that warmth and that contact from us, but it's not in a really overwhelming way of face to face interaction. And in fact, in a lot of autism classrooms, they have. Um, I mean, this is actually such a common phenomenon that that in a lot of autism classrooms they have weighted blankets. Hmm. Um, that to calm the children down, they'll and sometimes they'll be shaped sort of like a poncho. That they'll they'll put this weighted blanket around the child, and it'll, and, the, and the pressure uh, will actually calm them down. It's it's like being held, but it doesn't have that. Uh, they don't have people in their face <laughs> to, right. to a degree that they can't handle. 
I think uh, some of your listeners may be familiar with Temple Grandin, yes. who's a um, sort of maybe the best right. known uh, autistic person in the uh, in the world. And um, she constructed a, um, a machine for herself uh, that would uh, squeeze her uh, right. to sort of give her that feeling, that, mm-hmm. that comfortable feeling. And, and uh, there's a, also a version of that that they use to, to comfort uh, livestock. Right. I mean, I'd, I'd heard about her work with or, livestock, yeah. but not that she had also done that for herself. Yeah, and it's and and I I uh, work with uh, children with special needs, and they have um, at the school where I work a, uh, a sensory room that um, encompasses a lot of different sort of activities. But one of the things they have is just a big uh, a big soft sort of a pit where the children can lie down and then have quilts heaped upon them. <laughs> and this is surprisingly popular. Like children line up for this just mm. to be weighed down with blankets. You know, you wrote you you wrote a children's book, Autistic Planet, which I think just came out recently, didn't it? Is it? Yes. Yeah, and um, I suppose it really is. Um, will you talk about? What, I'm curious about. Were you writing this book for autistic children or for for other people, for the rest of us, or for other children? To because you are kind of trying to help somebody see inside this different way of yes. thinking and being in the world. It's a bit of both because uh-huh. um, I think, uh, you know, not all autistic children can read or understand this right. book. But for those who are higher functioning, it's, uh, it's you know, sort of a, a, a self-esteem booster, I think, would be. Yeah. But, but, I, um, but I was also really writing it for the families and people who, who know autistic children. And there's sort of a lot of inside jokes in here that may not make much sense unless you know somebody with autism. But I, I wanted to both demystify it and have a little fun with it yeah. because there are a lot of things that, that uh, I think autistic children might find embarrassing or, or frustrating if they have a, a you know, sense of uh, the social implications. Like, for instance, uh, stimming, I, I actually, um, which is, um, well, some people might notice that autistic children tend to rock or move, mm-hmm. uh, you know, move around or um, flap their hands, mm-hmm. and uh, and that that could be something that you know it, it can mark a child out if you don't know what it is they're doing. Um, but I wanted to make that sort of a positive, a positive thing, and so I I, uh, I have a line in the book towards the end where it says. At the end of every day, we flap our wings and fly away. Oh, and yeah. illustration of, of the kids, uh, or of, of adults in this case, um, you know, flapping their, their arms. Because I, I want that, I want to embrace that mm-hmm. aspect of it. Particularly because I think you know, a lot of these kind of things are not things that, you know, so they're not going to go away. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, that was something that we really had, that I think we realized early on with Morgan. And, and for me... Um, I think for both of us, writing about our, our child, you know, there was that question initially of, well, in terms of privacy, should we be writing about our family and about our son's disability? Right. But it wasn't that hard of a question because he is so clearly different when you meet him that, you know, within a matter of seconds, people pretty much know that something is up. They, they may not know what exactly. Um, and, and that he'll probably always be like that to at least some degree. Um, and so, you know, given that that's, that's just so much a part of, of, of who he is and, and who other autistic children are, 
um, it, it really made sense to embrace it. Um, you know, it's, it's sort of a guilty little secret among uh, families with autistic children. When we read uh, the headlines about rates of autism going up, that we sort of uh, see another side of it. There's the uh, the silver lining for us that the more autistic uh, kids there are, the better the understanding, the more services right. uh, <laughs> that we can expect. And, that you know, I, I took that thought to its logical conclusion with this book. That was sort of the inspiration for this book about, well, what if everybody was autistic? You know, everybody understood what was going on with Morgan and the world were constructed that way. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we might be moving that way. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, how how is he noticeably different? And is it is it very different at eight and a half than it was at two and a half? Well, it's it's different at eight and a half to me uh, in, in that w- he is pretty definitely autistic now. You know, at, at two and a half, they uh, they called it autism spectrum disorder. And we didn't really know where he would be by now. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's clear to us now that Morgan is an autistic person. And that's just what, you know, he's he's going to be autistic. And I, I don't know what the future holds for him, but... There's sort of a surety now that I, you know, we're not we're not trying to move him away from being autistic. Okay. I mean, we we certainly want him to adapt, you know, as well as possible to the outside world, and and uh, and and you want to try to head off behaviors that, you know, are, are particularly destructive or or uh, inappropriate in dealing with other people. But um, yeah, I mean, there was that sort of vagueness to the diagnosis initially, and, and a lot of caution on the parts of. Of educators and doctors, uh, where they'll say, "Well, it's early days; we don't know how things are going to progress." But you know, at, at this point, um, you know, uh, yeah, we we really don't know how he's going to continue to develop. But certainly, in his interactions with people now, it, it's just so evident from from the outset because uh, you know, even just basic things like uh, if someone comes up and says hi to him, he's not you know, no matter how much we. Uh, we drill him yeah, in, yeah. in in how one is, is supposed to deal with that. He really has no interest in it, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so he he won't um, return people's greeting a lot of the time. And he does he doesn't do small talk at all. It, he just really doesn't see the point. And uh, and so that you know in in like playground interactions or you know, relatives coming over and trying to talk with him that kind of thing, it becomes obvious very quickly. Um. You know, would you talk about this idea of theory theory of mind? The isn't that is that right? Yeah, that's um, uh, that was a concept that was uh, in, in part pioneered also by Simon Baron Cohen in, in, in his early work. Mm-hmm. Um, that he came up with what's become kind of famous in, in, in autism studies as the Sally Ann test, and uh, it's where you have. Uh, you show two children, Sally and Anne, and they have a box with marbles in it. And uh, one of them has taken uh, – one of them, while the other one isn't looking, takes the marbles out of the box and puts it – I don't know, hides it behind a planter or something like that in the room. And you then ask a child who's watching the scenario, okay, when, when Anne comes in, where is she going to look for the marbles? And – you know, most children, virtually all children, will say she's going to look in the box because she doesn't know that Sally has moved the marbles. Right. Uh, an autistic child will say she'll look behind the planter because uh, and and Baron Cohen's thesis for this was essentially that that uh, 
you need a theory of mind, the idea that someone else can perceive things differently from you uh, and that and that this other child coming into the scenario does not, in fact, know what you, the viewer, knows. Um, and that this is one of the one of the real characteristics of autism that and what makes communication so difficult that uh, I think a lot of the time they that an autistic child will simply be assuming that you already know what they want. <laughs> and so they, they literally are not going to see the point of communication all the time. And, is that, and, and does that, that help you understand, Morgan, better, that idea? I, I think so. It, it certainly explains a lot of the frustrations he has, that when he wants something and we don't immediately understand what it is that he wants, it's... Uh, he doesn't understand not, why you don't get it? Right. He's, uh-huh. he's, he's not trying to be difficult. He's frustrated because he just he doesn't know why we don't immediately get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think it also leads uh, a lot of autistic people to uh, regard other people uh, with sort of a detached, uh, almost scientific, observational style, you know. Um, Why is that? Well, <laughs> I don't uh, y- <laughs> You may have heard Oliver Sacks wrote a book called An Anthropologist on Mars, yes. uh, t- referring to Temple Grandin, you know, the way she would observe uh, other people, other people's behaviors, as if she was studying a foreign species. Right. You know? And um, uh, m- you may have recognized Simon Baron Cohen's name because his cousin has become very famous, Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> yes, right. I did. And I read there in your book. I'd love to be at that family dinner. Yeah, really. (laughs) But I actually see a connection. You know, I sort of wonder. uh, We've we've often wondered if um, if there may be a little bit of a uh, streak. I don't even know if I should say this on the radio, but some sort of streak of autism running through that family because. in my first book, I one of the the people that I profiled was uh, Andy Kaufman, uh, to whom many people have compared Sasha Baron Cohen. And yes. Andy Andy Kaufman, that was what most of his humor was about trying to um, trying to get a reaction out of people and studying. Uh-huh. And not everything that he did was funny. I see. You know, a lot saying. of it yeah. was just very uncomfortable. And uh, some people feel the way the same way about Sasha Baron Cohen's humor. But I think he's really you know, that's what he's looking for is some kind of reaction. And it's not always laughter. Right. But, you know. The movie Borat is what he's just, I should say that. Right. Yeah. Right. Just observing sort of the human condition and human reactions that way is is, is sort of an autistic trait. There is, um, when you described Morgan, again, as a toddler, he also had this not uncommon he had these abilities, right? He knew things. I remember this. There's a scene in the book where you had it. He was just you had somebody testing him, and he was running by saying, "Isosceles triangle rhombus," and he's <laughs> right. Uh, it, it, he's going through a geometry phase or something. But um, I, you know, I wrote in my margins of the book when I read that. You know, where does this come from? And then you also ask the same question. Uh, a few pages later, Paul, when you're obser- when you're talking about S- Simon Baron Cohen's work, and you say, you know, um, that Asperger watched, or no, you're talking about Asperger that he watched some of his early cases become mathematicians and engineers and chemists and musicians, and you're talking here about a, uh, comedians, you know. But you say, but if this cognitive underground existed quietly throughout society, where was it coming from? I mean, there's there's some real mystery in this, isn't it? I mean, a- across that spectrum, as you're talking about. I think that one of the, uh, you know, one of the most curious things to watch really with Morgan has been um, 
you know, that, that as parents, we can create an environment for them where we, we try to encourage uh, certain things or just try to provide a rich environment for him to learn in. But he's very self-motivated in terms of what he decides he wants to pay attention to mm-hmm. and what he finds interesting. And if he finds something interesting, he he just has this incredible focus upon it uh, and, and will develop so quickly. Um, and, and I think that's that's very common in, in terms of autistic spectrum kind of behavior that, um, you know, Asperger described, you know, yeah, people who uh, could do advanced mathematics uh, among among his uh, the children of his who were patients. But if you asked them what their name was, they couldn't tell you. They didn't even know how to respond. And, uh, I mean, it's sort of an extreme form of it in a way, but it's it, that really almost epitomizes that, that condition that um, – if there is something that, that captures their focus, it becomes an immensely powerful uh, tool in many cases, um, you know, if, particularly if one's interested in the sciences or the arts or whatever. But one of the strange things about autism is, is that it's, it's very difficult to harness that. Right. You know, it, I mean, you can try to put things in front of a child and, and in the hope that, well, maybe they'll be really interested in this, and that'll be a constructive thing, and you know, perhaps it will be good for them in terms of learning a profession or having a hobby or, or whatever. But it's it's almost impossible to be able to guess what it will be that captures that focus because they're really not interested in your judgment of what's important and what isn't. <laughs> but you, you know, know, the same thing is true of any child. You know, I mean, we don't. Yeah. None of us <laughs> knows what is going to grab our children's attention or where their talents will yeah. be. Morgan is passionate about musical instruments uh-huh. but he's equally as passionate about YouTube videos you know right. there's something that seems very trivial to us and just as important as the symphony orchestra to Morgan I see well and, and specifically he's become fascinated by the um, uh, was it the bumpers or whatever the the, the logos the and, logos yeah. that uh, film production companies run right before a movie or a TV show starts like the little uh, Paramount mountain logo and things really? like that or the universal opening that shows the revolving planet. Uh-huh. Um, and there's a whole community of people that are fascinated. The people who put... Um, there are hundreds of these posted on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> people and, compile, like, <laughs> histories of them in, into videos, and they're, they're passionate and they, about they it. they <laughs> rework them. They make their own versions on mm-hmm. uh, on their computers and parodies. And uh, we had no idea. You know, it's funny. We don't <laughs> usually think that Morgan has any social influences, but he actually picked this up from another boy at school who happened to be watching these YouTube videos one day. And another that, autistic boy. Another autistic yeah. child, yeah. I mean, you know, when you when we were talking a minute ago about these, the Peter the Wild Boy and, you know, how he kind of somehow epitomized this question that, that, was, very, that was very pressing in that time, you know, what does it mean to be human? Um, I mean, this, these kinds of traits of autistic people also really you know or in an extreme way make you ask questions like where does where do, where does curiosity come from and creativity and even knowledge because it seems like certain no- kinds of knowledge are already in young children that aren't there in other children right that's yeah and that's been um i mean for, i think for me one of the one of the most curious things to watch with morgan has particularly been his interest in music because there seem to be things with music that he just naturally seems to understand. I'm, mm-hmm. I, I'm fairly sure he has that he has perfect pitch, mm-hmm. um, and that's quite common, isn't it? Um, yeah, that turns up a lot with autistic children. Right, um, and uh, and and he'll he'll just pick out tunes by ear and and play them on the piano and that kind of thing. 
And, uh, uh, th- yeah, and that, that's an ability that comes up a lot. And, uh, and I don't know where that comes from exactly. We have lots of instruments around the house, but he's never taken a lesson and, hmm. uh, and, and has kind of no interest in taking lessons. He just really wants to deal with instruments on his own terms. And can he play them? Just, does he just know how to play them somehow? Yeah, he fi- he figures them out, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, it's funny how innate that is, and, and I think particularly how a, a lot of these kinds of abilities come up over and over again in different autistic children. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, for example, there there are a few things that that are almost uh, a, as soon as you hear about it, you just go, "Oh, that again!" <laughs> right. And, and and one of them is uh, you know a perfect pitch or or the ability to pick out things on the piano like that. Um, a- another thing is a fascination, for example, with uh, mass transit systems. Hmm. A lot, a lot of autistic kids are fascinated by bus schedules and bus numbers and uh, railways. And they memorize them, don't they? Yeah, they memorize a lot of this stuff. There's actually a <laughs> there's a tremendous fascination with Thomas the Tank Engine among huh. a lot of autistic kids, and I think it's because there's a whole little self-contained universe of this island and all these named uh, engines. And the other thing is, too, this occurred to me recently, The uh, if you've ever seen Thomas the Tank Engine, the uh, uh, the trains have faces on them, but they're not terribly expressive. There's only, you know, they don't have hundreds of facial muscles. Right, right. <laughs> the way humans do, they only have a few expressions. And so for, I think for an autistic child, it's much easier to interpret the train uh, than it is to interpret people. <laughs> I remember somebody commenting one time that there are a lot of autistic children who were uh, big fans of Japanese animation or anime. And one of the uh, oh, right. reasons they thought was because in the uh, these uh, animations, the um, the expressions of emotion are so strong and... Um, Clear cut. Stark, you know, there's yes. not a lot of nuance. They have wild you know, hair and outfits, but their their mouths exactly. and their eyes are yeah, yeah. If they're they're either furious or afraid uh-huh. or you know, and and it's there's not a lot of in between. So the autistic kids can watch it fairly comfortably, knowing what's going on. There's no sort of there's nothing subtle to pick up on. Mm-hmm. I um I have also read somewhere that many autistic children are um feel a kind of affinity with characters like Doctor Spock. In Star Trek, or I wondered about Commander Data as one of my heroes in Star Trek, (laughs) (laughs) the next generation. And I mean, that actually, is that true of Morgan or or other autistic children you know? He's a little young for for science fiction. Absolutely. The fact that you say that uh, you're a Data fan makes me think you might be one of us. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I know. It made me wonder too. Because the, and the, the, and there is in those characters in Spock and Data the 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 brilliance and and the kind of perplexity at at how strange how in fact how strange and complicated normal human beings are right with a range of emotions and interactions and and what a mess that is sometimes. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, th- I think I mean. Uh, Particularly when you have a character like Spock, who's supposed to be sort of of both worlds. Yes. Um, you know, he has one foot in the human world, mm-hmm. uh, and the other one isn't, and he's trying to figure it out and, and trying to somehow reconcile this. And uh, I, I think that that's yeah, I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of autistic people find him to be such a, a, a sort of a sympathetic character because their his situation kind of mirrors their own. They are very much part 
of our world and and you know draw from it and 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 actually help make a lot of the things in our world as well and yet it it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to them and and particularly social interactions are just uh there there's so much to social interactions that can't really be explained very logically you just have to intuit them and when you actually try to sit down and explain it to someone it doesn't make a whole lot of sense <laughs> well you know that's the thing i mean when i when i read you kind of um you know getting to know morgan and getting to know this what autism is what it means in him that you you step back from some some of what we consider to be normal aspects of life and realize in fact how illogical they they really are that, that we take this for granted this this degree of chaos yeah and and I, one of the difficult things too with you know with uh for, i think for an autistic uh, for an autistic child to learn how to deal with social interactions is that often they they work best with learning things step by step okay um you know that that you you can't necessarily just tell, and I mean this comes up even with really basic things like, for example, toilet training. An autistic child is a very painstaking process, hmm. and every you can't take any step of it for granted. Um, so you know you can imagine dealing with full blown social interactions with crowds of people um, that you actually have to break it down into a real step by step process for them a lot of the time, and. Um, and if they miss a step, they can suddenly become kind of disoriented. Right. This, this toilet training is sort of a famous example because um, a lot of autistic children, including Morgan, when they go to preschool, uh, use a system of little picture cards. And when you go into the bathroom at, a, at an autism school, you'll see above the sink, it's not enough to just have a sign that says, wash your hands. There's a little picture card for the water and then for the soap and then for the mm. towel, mm. And, you know, because because they need to they need to um, have it spelled out for them. It's not it doesn't necessarily follow. Um, they need a system. I wonder um I'm just thinking, just, I've got I got so many notes. I had so many, um, I was fascinated by so many things and had so many questions. Um, I'm going to stop for a minute, actually. Ask my producers <coughs> behind the glass if they have questions they want me to ask you, and then we'll keep talking. You can take oh, a little okay. break. Okay. Take a glass of water or something. I'm going to be quiet for a minute. Actually, yes. I'm coughing. <laughs> <Okay. all> <laughs> <clears throat> I think we can do that in script or even through a reading. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of where I wanted to go next. Are you there? Oh, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, another thing that really interested me and kind of surprised me to learn as I was getting into this is how for so long autism, what we now call autism, was grouped together with other quite diverse and often very different conditions like uh, schizophrenia or Down syndrome. Um, and that, in fact, it's fairly new that... Um, that that autism is even named and kind of is becoming understood 
Um, and yet I have the feeling that, that also just because of what we're able to, what science is able to do now with brain imaging and what we know about the brain and mapping DNA, that, that there is a whole new world of understanding. I'm, I'm just curious about if, if you're experiencing that. And, you know, what, what can we know now that, that um, the parents with an autistic child can could, could dream of, you know, even maybe 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 10 years ago? You know, I, I just want to jump in because mm-hmm. Paul has most of the scientific knowledge here. But 40 or 50 years ago, uh, there's, uh, there was still a lot of Freudian uh, thoughts about autism, including, you know, infamously Bruno Bettelheim. Yes. Who, yeah, who was um, looking for, well, not looking for, because I, I suppose you could say he was a charlatan, but was uh, ex- telling parents that they were, especially mothers, that they were to blame for the children's right. autism. Right. And were luckily well, uh, well free of those bad old days. But, you know, without uh, knowing a cause, it, it can be very difficult uh, for the parents to sort sort of uh, accept um, accept what's what's going on mm-hmm. and I'll turn it over to Paul okay, well let me before you get to Paul I just want to following uh-huh. in that I I wonder if um, because of that legacy of you know Bettelheim and that that stigma that did that did last that somehow it was terrible mothers and childhood traumas that were to blame when children were like this um, if that's one reason that maybe you don't hear people talking so openly about how um, autism or traits of autism run in families, that somehow maybe it's not some outside agent, but in fact something in us and in our families um, that, that, we're, that, that it's connected to. Yeah, and I can understand that because the the family traits don't explain why there is a, a rising rate, an ever-increasing rate. Mm-hmm. But, you know, one of the things that, that I have sort of posited uh, is that now uh, people like myself and Paul, it's possible that in a previous generation we would not have met and married. You know, we, we might, I, I won't say that, that we are necessarily um, oddballs, but yeah. <laughs> that, you know, there we both have traits that might have uh, taken us a different direction. So it's, it's possible that that may contribute to it in some cases. We definitely mm-hmm. feel like there is a family connection, but... Um, you know how much it is. It's 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 a mystery, and yeah. we we can't say that this is the this is what's going on. I mean, but it, again, it, it, it comes through creativity and and and, a, and accomplishment, right? It's it's connected to those things. Absolutely, it's, you know. I'm, <laughs> yeah, you know, I I'm the the daughter of a, a math major and musician who, um, you know, is not is not a person. Um, uh, I don't know how to put this actually. <laughs> is, is is you know not a person whose um, whose focus in life is uh, is human behavior, mm-hmm. you know, and and uh, I think none of us are are um, are. You know, Krista, I'm gonna I'm gonna back off of this. I think I'm going the wrong direction here. <laughs> okay, I got you. <laughs> so, right. uh, but you know, I, I I come from a family that that have a, a lot of these traits, mm-hmm. and um, so it's uh, it's easy to see okay, how it All right. comes down. All right. All right. <laughs> you want to? And, and I think 
Oh, yeah. I, I think for a lot of parents, you know, particularly after the initial diagnosis of a child, that, that there's a really understandable desire to, to want to know how did this happen. Yeah. And being told that, well, there seems to be a set of genes that, and it may be up to 100 different genes, and we don't really know exactly what combination or what environmental influence there might be in triggering it, uh, but there seems to be a genetic element as well, uh, and perhaps a very strong one. It's not really like a satisfying answer for a lot of people. (laughs) People want a direct cause. And and, and so I think that's made it very difficult for a lot of people to... uh, to deal with, and, and there's a certain element I think for a lot of people of of guilt. You know that that yeah. um, if they see these traits within themselves uh, or within their families, and, and and you sort of have this reaction of, have I somehow passed this on to my to my child? And I mean, the short answer, I guess, is yes. <laughs> that in the way that you pass anything else, any, anything else on to right. your child, right? And, and so it, it's sort of unavoidable in that sense that that. Um, how can a child not, in part, be uh, deeply influenced by who you are? Mm-hmm. A- and yet that's not – it's not something that should cause guilt. Um, but I think it does for a lot of people. And that, that makes it – that genetic element, I think, makes it uh, – probably as with any genetic condition um, – a, a very difficult thing for, for a lot of parents to contend with. Mm-hmm. It just um, struck me – was it Asperger who said – who one of his definitions was that these that autistic people are not don't experience themselves to be part of an organism, kind of a world unto themselves. It's kind of what we were talking about a minute ago. Yeah. But what this DNA, you know, talking about it genetically this way does does in fact say suggest that they are very much a part of the organism in elemental yeah. ways, physical ways. And and one of the curious things uh, in, in recent years, I mean, there, there's. I think in terms of the the rise in the autism rate, uh, one thing is cert- one element of it has certainly been that there's just much better diagnosis. Yes, um, some people and, say that that is that accounts for the whole um, rise. Don't right, they? and and you know, autism wasn't even really conceptualized uh, or named until the early 1940s, and initially, uh, actually, because Asperger's paper was not translated into English. For a long time, uh, in the English-speaking world at least, the concept of autism was pretty much limited to the um, to the more sort of obvious or profound forms of autism. Mm-hmm. And now that there's a whole concept of, a, of an entire spectrum, it means you have far more diagnoses. Um, uh, so that's part of it. And, and in fact, there was, a, to me, a really fascinating study um, done in the 1970s, when a, a lot of uh, mental uh, of a lot of mental institutions were being shut down, and uh, they did uh, exit exams on on a number of patients, and uh, they were finding a lot of these people had come into these institutions before the notion of autism even existed, and right. uh, had been given this you know tremendously wide and often very vague variety of of diagnoses and. Coming out, they found that a, a, a strike. The majority of the patients in these places were autistic. Hmm. So they've they've always been part of society, but I think for a long time they weren't being diagnosed, and they were actually being hidden away, so to right. speak. They were being institutionalized, so they, they just weren't a visible presence for a lot of people. Hmm. You know, um, some uh, um, you may be aware that uh, the author Nick Hornby has an autistic child as well, no. and. Um, 
at one point, um, Paul uh, Paul was in contact with him, and uh, he he uh, about uh, about Morgan, and uh, he wrote back that he didn't realize that Paul was in the club. <laughs> and ever since then, when we we've come to think when when we see somebody who we think might be autistic or on the spectrum, we'll say, you know, I wonder if he's in the club. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so that that occurs to us, you know, when we're watching, for instance, the spelling bee or something like that. Right. That comes up a right. Lot, so. <laughs> Yeah, I have to say, I've been thinking about that differently so just since I was reading your work and also just um, looking into this. And anyway, Stephen Jay Gould, you, um, Paul, you quote from his chapter right. on his son, and I got that, and it's just beautiful. It's amazing. Yeah, it, it's it's really, uh, I mean, for me, talking with, with some of the other parents uh, of autistic children, I, I think that initially we we didn't have a whole lot of contact Um and and it was sort of difficult. I, I suspect a lot of parents run into this that because of uh, because of, of privacy laws uh, in schools and, and in medical institutions, uh, you can't simply ask someone, "Oh, is that child over there autistic?" Right. Uh, they they won't tell you. Uh, even if your child is in an autism classroom, if you ask the teacher, "Oh, are these other kids also autistic?" That you won't really get a straight answer. Um, so over time, you finally meet other parents that you you finally find it. Yes, their kids are autistic too. And, uh, but initially I, I, we didn't really have that. And so, yeah, one of the, but you know, there are certain authors that have been very public about talking about their autistic children. And, and so for me as a writer, that was actually, uh, a really nice thing to be able to do was, uh, Nick Hornby and I have some mutual friends. And so to just approach him and say, I'm in this situation too. Mm-hmm. And, um, it's interesting too, because his response to me at the time was, uh, he uh, he said, "Try not to think too far ahead, hmm. uh, because it won't do you any good." And I think my initial reaction to that was that it, uh, it, it I thought, "Wow, that's, that's sort of a despairing thing to say." <laughs> um, and well, yet, well, he is British. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. He has a stiff upper lip. Very doer you? sort yeah. of reaction. Yeah. <laughs> but the funny thing is, as I've gone along, I've really come to see the wisdom of that comment, just in the sense of, uh, you know, obviously we're always thinking about Morgan's future and, right. and it's impossible not to think, you know, what's going to happen 10, 20 years from now or, you know, what's going to happen when we're not around. Right. And um, any parent wonders that as well. Uh, yeah. Every parent mm-hmm. has these worries and, and they're just all the more heightened when mm-hmm. you have a child with a disability. And um, so that that's always in the back of my mind. But his basic point that, you know, for one thing, you just simply have to deal with uh, you have to prioritize. <laughs> you have to deal right. with the day-to-day things. And also, particularly with an autistic child, it's so hard to know exactly how they're going to develop and, mm-hmm. and what they'll take an interest in and, and where that will take them, that it, it's it's almost not that constructive to to really obsess over over the distant future too much because it's, it's just so hard to tell, and you need that energy for other things. Mm-hmm. This also came into play um, when we were, you know, thinking about having another child because on the one hand, you know, we thought it would be really great for Morgan to have a sibling. And on the other hand, we didn't want to sort of, uh, you know, have um, a child born with an obligation to Morgan's future, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's and that's something you think about when you have a, 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 a child with a disability. Now, this was the kind of cliffhanger ending of Paul's book. Uh, four, three years right. ago. So did, did you have another child? 
Oh, yes. We did. We have a three-year-old. <laughs> you do. <laughs> and as far as we can tell, he is not autistic. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, like, it's really like a different, uh, a different thing. We're, we're parenting for the first time in this new, you know, this mm-hmm. new way, this typical way that the rest of the world parents. So, <laughs> so it's very different. Yeah. And, you know, when the pediatrician, uh, Morgan's pediatrician, found out that uh, we were going to have a baby, she was very excited. She said, oh, he'll be in Morgan's face all the time. <laughs> Any boy is yes. he ever. He loves Morgan. He just thinks Morgan's the greatest. And Morgan... Morgan likes him. Uh-huh. Morgan likes Bramwell, but he, he likes him in smaller doses. <laughs> like any older brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to ask you this. Um, you know, it, it, I've had uh, uh, several you know comment conversations over the years about children as little philosophers and little theologians. You know, that in childhood we start asking these great existential questions. Where did we come from? Is there a God? If there's a God, who made God? <laughs> you know, um, and also ethical questions like why do people why do people hurt each other and i i wondered do, do you experience that kind of those kinds of questions that kind of side to morgan no i'm not sure how abstractly he thinks about these things mm-hmm. um you know my feeling uh and i won't speak for paul since we have different feelings on this but mm-hmm. I feel that uh, that we all come into this world with a sort of immediate natural relationship with God, and so that for for Morgan, he has that you know that's just the way it's always been for him. He has that relationship, and it's unaffected by whatever society has to say about it. But um, I don't think um, I think that we have to introduce ideas of ethics to him because this sort of thing just simply doesn't occur to him. He's certainly not cruel, right, right. but he doesn't have, uh, he doesn't, uh, getting back to the theory of mind, he just doesn't spend a lot of time thinking about how, what other people are experiencing. Right. So, so I suppose if he's not, he can't really, he's perplexed by other people's reactions and I suppose part of being kind or compassionate is about is is then such a complicated would be such a complicated interaction kind of beyond the way he the way he th- the way his mind works hmm. I don't think it's impossible for him mm-hmm. I just think that it needs to to be taught because he do, it it, uh, it doesn't come to him immediately the way it might come to us one thing we've actually had to teach Morgan with with his little brother is how to comfort hmm. his little brother and, hmm. and 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 I mean we're still at the stage where uh, we have to remind him <laughs> that you know, if if uh, something happens and and uh, and Bramwell gets upset or if you know he falls down and skins his knee or that kind of thing, hmm. uh, that the appropriate thing to do is to ask if he's okay or to you know to give him a hug or something like that. And, and otherwise, it it doesn't really occur to him. And and not yeah, n- not out of any uh, sort of cruel or, or, right. or callous <laughs> sense of it, but just that it, I think it really doesn't occur to him. And uh, that issue of empathy. Is is a very difficult one, I think, for a lot of autistic people, um, because I, I I think for for those particularly not familiar with them, it may seem kind of pointedly um, callous when in fact it's uh, I think just a, it kind of comes down to a lack of of understanding of mm-hmm. the situation a lot of the time, and and they don't see the the point in it. So I mean, Jennifer, if you, when you say that. You, 
you you believe that he has a you know that we all come into the world with a relationship with God, but with with Morgan, is that just more something that that you intuit? I suppose because he doesn't communicate in the way that he doesn't talk about things the way non-autistic people talk about things. Is that what you're saying? It's just yes, something you yes, believe. Absolutely, that's uh-huh. that's right. And um, you know, he doesn't speak very abstractly about anything, mm-hmm. and. Um, and the, the the sort of window into his soul that we have is usually uh, through a sort of a code that's based on uh, on his um, on the books and videos that he consumes. Hmm. Hmm. So he often somehow puts together uh, puts together phrases and characters from books to express something. And of course, nothing's coming to mind right now as I say that. But you know, he will he will express something by by way of mentioning, you know, the cat in the hat feels sad. or or that sort of thing. And that's how he that that's how he lets us know that he's thinking about about somebody being sad. So we we just have to we understand that when he's uh, when he's putting together these um, these two other people meaningless uh, expressions that uh, they are his way of interpreting the world, which he does primarily through literature, because he doesn't really uh, he doesn't pick up on um, scenes uh, in person. Hmm. You know, he picks up through uh, through scenes in books and videos uh, what what human interactions are about. I think that human interactions are much too fleeting for him Hmm. to have a chance to interpret them, whereas he'll read a book over and over again or watch a scene in a video over and over again um, and can really try to to figure it out or or at least kind of memorize it as almost a kind of a script for for dealing with the world in in a way that, yeah, that that in-person interactions, they're not repeatable in a consistent manner for him, so it's very difficult for him to figure them out. Kind of makes you think that the 21st century is not a bad time to be born as an autistic person with all this rich world of media that we have, the, the way you're Absolutely. talking about I, it. I have no idea what autistic people, how they spent their time before the computer. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we needed them to invent the computer, too. Isn't that right? Yes. Isn't the inventor of the computer one of your... One of the people in your book, Jennifer, yes, autistic absolutely. heroes, Alan uh, Turing. Yeah, Alan Turing. And, um, <laughs> he's, I mean, it took a lot of people to invent yes, the computer, yes. but he's one of the, sort of the father of modern computing. And, you know, I think a, a lot of people look at him as somebody who really had a, a lot of difficulty in the world right. because the world that he needed to exist in really hadn't been invented and didn't come along until several years after after he was no longer with us. So uh, I think he's a great example of somebody who would really enjoy living in our time. Hmm. And, you know, you did, Jennifer, your book, uh, you you also have this book, My Autism Heroes. Is that the title? Sorry, I didn't write that. Different Like Me. Different Like Me. And then My Book of Autism Heroes. Different Like Me, My Book of Autism Heroes. And it it includes, um, uh, you know, people like Albert Einstein and Alan Turing and, and... female mathematicians I've never heard of and the first, what was it, the first African-American scientist um, and Yes, and I I had never heard of most of these people Yeah, I mean some of them, Temple Grandin is in there, right, but um, and there are those amazing stories and this this category of savants, which is associated with autism Um, and that is so fascinating and and then 
you know, but then what I also know is that that all autistic children are not gifted, and there's new there's some new research about girls in particular, autistic girls, that they have higher mm-hmm. rates of depression and suicide, and not necessarily these skill sets that um, that autistic boys often have. Right. And that is um, something that, you know, Paul and I have sort of spoken of this openly, and Paul wrote about it, but um, Morgan does take antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And um, we feel like when he was first diagnosed, we resisted medicating him. And we most, uh, many of the other children that we knew, autistic children, were uh, medicated. But um, there came a point for him after we we made a move across country where he be, just became very distressed and, and couldn't function. And it's not so much that we wanted to um, change who he was. We sort of wanted him to be able to be who he was. Mm-hmm. And at that point, it, it uh, the depression was interfering with that. And um, Paul, actually, I'm going to turn to you because I I like what you said about him emerging. Well, yeah, I I think that he, um, yeah, the the move, and and it it had actually been kind of building up for a while as he got older, that he he became more and more sensitive to um, things that frustrated him in the outside Mm -hmm. world and Mm -hmm. and more and more overstimulated by them. And, And really didn't know how to handle them and, and, and would get very upset about it. And the move really brought that to a head. And so at, at that point, it actually wasn't a difficult decision um, because we also had a, a, a small child and, you know, he would, uh, and Morgan would be thrashing around. And so there was mm-hmm. a real physical danger at right. that point. So it, it, was, uh, it was actually a very easy decision in that sense. It was just necessary. And he kind of became his old self. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was sort of a remarkable thing to see. And and his old self, not in the sense that suddenly he was no longer autistic. He's, you know, very much so. But, right. But he could be sort of happy in the self that he already had been. And uh, so, I, you know, and that's also another thing about uh, – the era that we live in that makes me feel extraordinarily <laughs> fortunate. Because <laughs> yeah. there's just no, I mean, for me, there's no question that in a past era, uh, you know, even just 20, 30 years ago, probably, um, I mean, for one thing, he might have been institutionalized from the outset. Yeah. But certainly once uh, he became difficult to manage uh, physically um, and and getting really frustrated and that kind of thing, he probably would have been institutionalized at that point. Mm-hmm. And, and and as it is, that's still a situation that a lot of parents uh, find themselves brought to, where they have an autistic child. Uh, yeah, I, you were sort of bringing this up earlier that you know not not all autistic children are going to be these wonderful prodigies and sort of miracle right, composing stories. composing music and solving right. complex and, mathematical equations. And, yes. Right. And, and, and there's a real temptation for, for, uh, uh, for a writer to want to focus on those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, clearly uh, that's a, a comparatively small number of people. And, and you can see those kinds of abilities in lots of other autistic children. But they're going to also have all kinds of challenges and actual retardation in, in some cases, and, and also physical problems. Like a lot, there's a lot of epilepsy, for example, mm-hmm. uh, among autistic children. And um, these can present huge challenges. And in some cases, for the, you know, some families, really for the, for the good of the household, 
uh, either wind up having to uh, either having to heavily medicate their children or to institutionalize them. And it's uh, you know it's one of those things that that I think you know for, from our experience uh, it it's a difficult situation for a parent to be in when it comes to that, and yet you have to watch out for your family and for your child's well-being. And uh, you know, that, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was just yeah. going to say when um, when different like me first came out, uh, I heard a, I actually did um, receive some criticism from people who who said that you know this book just talks about how great these autistic people right. are and doesn't focus on the you know the challenges. It's way too optimistic. And I used to joke to Paul that uh, I'm going to call my second book the sad lonely bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Right. <laughs> It'd be the flip side. <laughs> Would you still, when you talked about Morgan, and, and again, I keep checking myself because I think a lot of the generalizations you can make uh, about more about Morgan or autistic children, you can also make them. I mean, I was, so I was going to say as an as a as a toddler, you called him. You know, he was really happy and playful. Right. He may not have been communicative yeah. in the way some children his age were, but. Um, would you still describe him as happy and and playful at eight and a half? Yeah, he's. I, I think he's generally a happy child. He's um he's quieter mm-hmm. now, you know. And I think, but maybe I mean, again, that's what I mean older. is true of between any two and a half year old and any right. eight and a half year old. That's where I keep catching myself. Yeah. Yeah, he's you know he's mu- he internalizes much more. Mm-hmm. I think you know he spends a lot of time thinking about, and of course you know to some extent it's our influence because he just he Morgan is a climber. That's uh, he's that's just what he does. You know, he'll find the highest point in any uh, environment that he really? can get to. Yeah. Yeah. And so we've had to get him down off the piano and off the kitchen counter and, you know, and uh, and so I think to some to some extent that has sunk in a little that he, you know, he has to tone it down. But still, when we get to the. When we get to the playground, although he and he's his quietness actually aids his stealth. That if we have our back turned, we'll turn around, and he's he is he's the highest point in the huh. landscape. Huh. So. Yeah, that that comes up with a lot of autistic children where they love climbing on things like that, and and yeah. How do you understand that? that? Is there something you know that, that explains just seems that to, you? to be. I, I, I don't know. know. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's something. There's some great metaphor here about how you know they're rising above the right. you know the rabble of society yeah. to look over us. But yeah, he just always has loved that. He's just always loved doing that. And and uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because in that sense, yeah, he's had to become a little less exuberant <laughs> for his own safety. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but generally, he's he's a, a really happy kid. And and usually when frustrations come about, it's it's just dealing with the outside world. When he's mm-hmm. doing his own thing, uh, he's actually quite happy. Hmm. And I, you know, I, and that's one of those things. I think that's true for a lot of autistic kids. But by the same token, it's it's not true for some. There are some that that deal with uh, that that are just in a lot of distress much of the time and have to deal a lot with with issues of depression and things like that. Right. right. And and that is one thing I'm very hopeful about that you know autism being a a, a, gene- a a condition with a very strong genetic element and one that clearly shapes your sort of neurological development from the get-go I don't know that that uh, science is necessarily going to come along with something that will somehow reverse all of that it, it seems mm-hmm. unlikely in yeah. that sense but I do think that we live in an age where there's much more hope that 
that uh, some of the more challenging or really difficult aspects of it can at least be mitigated a great deal. And and yeah, that that makes me feel very fortunate. Uh, I mean, that's already the case to some extent. Um, it makes me feel very fortunate to live in this time. Yeah. yeah, that that we're able to say, you know, we have a happy, healthy, autistic child, which I think is something that previous generations were, right. were not encouraged Put to do. Put all think those of it words in way. a sentence together. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I was really struck by this um these lines, Paul, in your book, because you were I think along the lines we've been speaking, um so Isaac Newton was another person in Jennifer's book. Um completely single minded person who happened to be focusing, as you say, on something other people found important. Um, right. <laughs> and you said there are Newtons of refrigerator parts and Newtons of painted light bulbs and Newtons of train schedules. And Isaac Newton happened to be the Newton of Newtonian physics. And you cannot have him without having the others, too. Yeah. And I, I think that's uh, I, mean, I mean, there's two things that that, that, that brings to mind, actually. I, I, I was in Italy not too long ago. Uh, for some reason, the uh, the book's actually been really popular over there. Hmm. Um, and uh, a, a a journalist there asked me, "Well, what if we were able to do genetic screening for autism?" Yeah. And and I said, "Well, that's actually a really difficult question because uh, what are you prepared to lose?" Yeah. Um, and you know, I, I don't know if anyone would, would argue necessarily against uh, addressing issues of of really profound autism and of of some of the very uh, real and profound difficulties that autistic people face, but those sorts of abilities and 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 the traits that show up in the families around them, yeah, I don't know if you want to lose those. But the funny thing about that too is that it's it's very hard to control where that focus is going to go. Yes, um, and I, I think it, it's funny too because in a way, some of the situations that we find ourselves in are not really that different than what other parents find themselves in. It's just heightened a bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I think I think all parents have to deal with at, at some point in their lives the the realization that their child that you you can influence your child's development and you can try to provide the best environment possible around them, but you can't actually actively mold who they are. It, to some extent it's up to them and mm-hmm. to the choices and and to the inclinations that they have and and what they choose out of that environment that you've provided for them. Is kind of, kind of be out of your hands, and that at some point you just have to accept who they are. Yes, and, and I think typically that's that's an issue that comes up in adolescence or you know in young adulthood, um, and and it's just that with an autistic child that it, that issue comes up a lot earlier. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and that and that you realize that. Uh, and I think the possibilities you know, again, the spectrum of possibilities. There's. There's there are things to be scared of that you know about, maybe that other parents have, can't imagine. Or <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, well, we certainly worry about how he's going to make his way in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but yeah, by the same token, I I think it's um, you know that idea of of there being Newtons of of different abilities or of different subjects. It, it's so hard to know what. Uh, what a child is going to put their focus on, uh, really any child, but mm, but right. particularly so with an autistic child. And and it's important to them. And if, uh, you know, in some very fortunate circumstances, it may turn out to be something that's uh, incredibly important to lots of other people. But I think in a way, often it doesn't matter to them. It's The interest is inherent within the subject. And if it happens to interest you too, 
that's fine, but they're they're not out to impress you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I um, it seems to me that we we tend our public discussions about autism tend to focus on children, and you know, as you're saying, as parents, you're looking ahead into the futures, and we don't hear very much. We, I mean, the the general public, you don't hear a lot about autistic adults. There, there's a really interesting book that was published by Kamran Nazir. Have you seen that yeah. book? Send in uh. the Idiots. And um, he is a policy advisor in the British government who as a child was put into a home for autistic children and then went back and sought a few of them out to see what had happened to them. I guess the subtitle is The Other Side of Autism. And, I mean, here's something he wrote, and I just, I'd like to read this to you, and I'd like to know how you react to it. Um, he, this is piecing together some things from near the end of his book. He said, it's unusual for autistic individuals to become top-ranked speech, writer, speech writers or computer scientists like Craig and Andre, two friends of his, but progress is legion. However, what is significant isn't simply that we're less idiotic than before. It's also the means that we became this way through exposure to the world that lay beyond the horizon of our own selves. Our autism eased in each case because of other people, our parents, friends, and our teachers, of course. This realization sometimes expands inside me until I feel as if my organs are going to bruise one another. <laughs> I was interested in what he says as, as that last sentence about how it makes him feel. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny. He he actually contacted me as he was mm. working on the book, and and um, and and uh, when he did a reading in in Iowa, um, we were we were at the reading together, and I introduced him. And I, I think the the project that that Cameron undertook it was such an extraordinary thing, and and the fact that he was coming from an autism classroom himself. Yes. And and undergoing or undertaking this extraordinarily um, social project yes. Yes. <laughs> of tracking down his old classmates uh-huh. and interviewing them, which is is like mountain climbing. Yeah. <laughs> for, uh, Maybe know, for, that's for what someone... that climbing metaphor is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, you know, for, for someone um, who is autistic himself to be to be undertaking something like that um, indicates such a, a wi- as you put it, a widening of of horizons, mm-hmm. and such a tremendous effort. It, it's really almost a, you know, I think it could be called a heroic book. But he did find and, that the other people. I mean, I guess one of his classmates who he sought out had committed suicide. A girl. Yeah. But they did have lives. They had relationships. They had jobs. Yeah. Um. And I think what's in, we talked early on about the definition of living in your own world, but what he does suggest is that through the care of parents and friends and teachers, autistic individuals do, um, are able as adults to move beyond that enclosed self. Very much so. But it, well, it depends though, because there's such a wide spectrum of autism that, you know, there, there are some people that are always... Uh, liable to to need an aid, basically, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and uh, to not really be able to deal with with the outside world on their own, and then that that kind of goes all the way to the other end to the other end of the spectrum. One of the more interesting phenomenon of recent years with autism has been that because As- uh, Asperger's syndrome was not really understood, and the paper on it hadn't even been translated until about twenty years ago. Yeah. Um, all these people who are adults are now kind of retroactively 
getting diagnosed with Asperger's <laughs> right. syndrome right. And, and discovering that they had been living their whole lives this way. And, and suddenly it all makes sense to them. Uh, and uh, the, the common reaction in a lot of those cases is, I wish I'd known this when I was younger because mm-hmm. yeah. it would have explained a lot. Mm-hmm. So th- these are people who have lived out uh, you know, lives and gotten jobs and gotten married, but you know, had this you know, unusual set of characteristics or uh, abilities or um, way of framing the world, and they, they had no way of understanding why it was like this. Yeah. You know, um, I, I think um, it, we've followed this Michael Apted film series that I think now the last one was 49 Up for several oh, years. Yeah. Have you seen these? Where they mm-hmm. started with a group of children. I haven't seen them. I've heard about them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they filmed them every seven years. These are British children, and um, I think they're they're yeah now at forty nine. And one of them that we watched with interest, um, Paul and I felt, was probably on the spectrum, and he had a very difficult uh, life because he uh, he he suffered from depression and he was um, sort of a loner, and ended up for a while living uh, on his own out in a, a trailer out in the out in the Scottish Highlands. And then he reconnected with one of the other members of the uh, one of the other children who were now as they were adults, and uh, returned to society, and that seemed to really make a difference for him, you know. And I think that society is is very important. It's difficult for people who maybe you know parents who may be on the autism spectrum to uh, themselves mm-hmm. to embrace society because you know we hmm. want to stay home and and uh, do our you know do our thing but um for for him it uh it really made a difference and i sort of have been focusing on that a little bit uh recently that you know we try to take morgan out into the neighborhood and people know him at the shops and so forth we have him pay for his uh, ice cream cone when we're out. And mm-hmm. I really want him to sort of start connecting. And even if he doesn't know the uh, the people that are our neighbors, they know him. And that, I feel like, is going to be very important as we move forward, that, they, that people know Morgan. Mm-hmm. and uh, Important and, for him and for them, I suppose. Yes. Uh, well, yes. Um, especially important for him, though, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've we actually we moved away from uh, the city where we live for a couple of years. And when we came back and went to some of Morgan's old haunts, people still know him. And that amazed me because, you know, the sort of minimal social skills that he has, mm. people remember Morgan. And uh, and I'm I'm hoping that bodes well for his future. That That's one thing, too, that I that makes me very hopeful as well that that I think we now live in a time when because autism is getting so much more attention um, that over time people are, are are likely to be much more aware of when they see these sorts of behaviors in yeah. someone else uh, to not simply avoid contact with that person or or uh, to think that the person's being contrary for no reason or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I, I think we're living in a time that's likely to, to be much more uh, uh, accepting and understanding and patient with people who, who may be uh, dealing with the world in a different way. And, uh, yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about Cameron's book is that is that he found actually quite a range in, yes. in a way of, you know, <clears throat> I mean, going from someone one of his classmates committing suicide to uh, all the way up to one who was you know, very high functioning and very successful. 
and and also various sorts of situations in between where people you know some of them were having quite a few difficulties even even yes. now yes and i think that in a way that was a very it's a very honest way for him to to put it that you know it, it's hard to know how it's going to go for your child in adulthood um it's hard for any parent to know <laughs> uh, but there there is that whole range of possibilities there are things to worry about in profound ways for mm-hmm. for parents of autistic children but at the same time a lot of them do manage to make their way in the world in a very you know constructive and happy way i guess you know if we're we've taken a lot of time i i feel like i could talk to you much longer but i i, I think we should wind down but i i do want to ask that you know the lar- this come back to this large question behind all this. You know, even as you're talking, Paul, I'm thinking, again, it's a spectrum that's parallel to the spectrum of what we call normalcy, right? Because if I went back and visited five college friends, also, I, I might find I would find someone who had committed suicide, and I would find a range of healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships, and not those particular right. challenges, <laughs> but illnesses, right, or disabilities, or I don't know. It's so. I mean, how does living with Morgan and the way you've had to think about autism? Um, how does that how does that change the way you think about some of these great existential questions or you know what what it means to be human? How does it change the way you live um think about yourself? I think you know it's probably really had two big influences on me in, in a way. One is that i I think I've become I would hope at least much more patient mm-hmm. and empathetic with other people hmm. when they're acting in ways that I don't understand. Uh, I, I think that in the past when someone seemed to be acting oddly or seemed to be sort of very socially awkward or just doing things that, that uh, seemed kind of unnerving or didn't make sense to me, I would just uh, – I would think, well, what's what's that guy's problem? And, and you know, maybe avoid them. And uh, – and that's, an, I think, a natural reaction for anyone to have. Yes. But at the same time, when when I see that now, I actually find myself uh, asking that as a genuine question. Well, what is that person contending with? You know, or or what is it like for that person? Um, so I, I think that's part of it. And I think that another big influence that that it's had on me is that it's helped me understand uh, myself and my family in a different way. Uh, you know, in, in seeing these traits showing up in other families and, and, and seeing them showing up in my own family, um, it, it's made me realize that some of the, that some of the problems that I have, um, you know, for example, in, in having a difficult time hearing people sometimes or mm-hmm. focusing too much, are also some of the things that just make me who I am. And without those qualities, I don't know that I would be the same person. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think that's probably true of many people for many behaviors that you you want to mitigate them to the extent that they're destructive, perhaps. But that at the same time, a lot of these kind of things shape who you are and actually shape your abilities and and how you interact with the world. Mm-hmm. And and Morgan is just a more uh, sort of heightened example, maybe, mm-hmm. of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wanted to say that uh, one thing um, that uh, that has come up with us is um, Morgan really loves the goodwill, which is not a, a place that I gave much thought. The goodwill, the, the store, the 
Yes. Uh-huh. I have to say that Portland, Oregon has some of the finest Goodwills I've ever experienced in my life. <laughs> okay. And, and Morgan will ask for the Goodwill, and, uh, and we love to take him there because it's—I um, never would have thought of this before, Morgan, but it's a place that's very friendly to people with disabilities. And when I'm there, I often see other hmm. other people with developmental disabilities and people who I might not have noticed before. And now I do. Now I think yeah. about you know what how to how to make their world as comfortable as possible. And that's that's just a, a place where they can be. That's uh, <laughs> you know that's comfortable and accepting. And you really do when you're there. You feel like you're part of a community, even if you've never seen you know if mm. if it's a, a store full of strangers to you. That um, that I it, it gives me another perspective on uh, on interacting with people who might be invisible otherwise. Mm. Do you think of Morgan's autism? Do you think of it as a word as a disability? Does that word work? Yes. I might not use it in some contexts, but I think that it's important to acknowledge that um, Morgan uh, has challenges. Mm-hmm. And to to look away from them, I, I don't think would serve us at all. You know, and I, I am the most positive, gung-ho autism mom you can imagine. Right. And I mean, you're the one who wrote the book about autism heroes and the geniuses. Right. So I think that's right. it's really important that that's the context in which you make that remark. But there are two things. You know, one is that I, I don't want to... Um, to imagine that he doesn't, you know, that he isn't facing uh, any any challenges at all. The other thing, of course, is that Morgan needs services. And mm-hmm. as an advocate for him, I don't want to whitewash any difficulties he's having because when it's time to be the squeaky wheel as parents, we've got to step up and say, Morgan needs uh, these mm. things. You know, okay. Morgan needs help. And so I don't think... I know disability is is a word that bothers some people, but for us, it's it's a word that has meaning, okay. which is you know Morgan Morgan has needs just as anybody does, and we need to acknowledge them in order to fill them okay. to meet them. Anything else? Anything I, either of you have wanted to say? Oh, no. I think this is wonderful. So. I've yeah. so yeah, enjoyed it. I, I hope you have. Thank you. Thank you so much. And um, I don't, I'm just looking behind the glass. I think we're producing this next month. We, I'm, okay. We've got some vacations coming up, but I wanted to get the interview in. So we will um, let you know exactly what's happening and dates and all of that. Um, but probably oh, it'll be after Labor Day. Anyway, more people okay. are listening to the radio after Labor Day, too. Oh, great. <laughs> people will be back. <laughs> Oh, well, thank you so, so much for making the time and for talking to me. And I really loved spending this time with you. Thank you. It's been great for us, too. Yeah, it was really nice. All right. Okay, so um, somebody will probably be sending you emails. We may have some follow-up questions, and that'll be in a couple weeks. Thanks a lot. Okay, Thank you. It was nice to meet you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.